Good evening to you all. How is it out there in Yogi Land? Heaven or hell? Sometimes we go through a lot of different territory in the course of a single day or even a single sitting. Isn't that interesting? How the weather fronts can roll in and manifest in different kinds of ways and just when we think it's going to be that way forever, whether pleasant or unpleasant, something happens and then it's different. It's almost like it's impermanent or something. (laughs) Now you're three weeks into this voyage. You know what that means. The shore is out of sight (laughs) in all directions. You're in the middle of this vast plain or vast sea. And it's pretty organic at this point in the retreat that things can come up that are challenging if they haven't already, like some deep, deep openings sometimes, and it can be challenging. But we have a context for our practice and good conditions for, for working with whatever is there with wisdom. I'd like to start by pointing out to you that Hearing a Dharma talk is a practice. So it's a practice in and of itself. No, I regret to tell you it is not designed for entertainment, although it may be entertaining, funny at points, because this is kind of a humorous thing that we're doing in a certain kind of way, right? And in fact, a little bit of lightness can actually benefit your practice. But really the point of these talks is to offer you the deep teachings of the Buddha so that you understand the the framework or the context of what you're doing here. So we aspire to offer you the core teachings over the period of us being with you. So you're going to hear a lot of talks that have information in them. You know, the Buddha was a great list maker. So, you know, you've heard these different teachings already. The four factors, um, the four noble truths, the uh, five hindrances, the eightfold path, the seven factors of awakening, the, right, there's a lot of lists which is good good for us because if he hadn't been able to be so analytical and specific in transmitting the teachings, they never would have survived. Right? If it was just, a, oh, the Buddha is a wonderful, powerful teacher and he says, be in the present moment and have a lot of metta, maybe that would have been enough uh, during his time 
to have some kind of transmission to people and uh, have them wake up uh, in their their own minds. But by the time you got 2,000 years later, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of that liberated potency um, would still be there. So with the specificity of the teachings that, that allows us to, to really understand in a deep kind of way what he's talking about and what is to be done to free our own hearts and minds. So you don't need to worry about like, oh God, I got to remember it, I got to remember it, I got, need to remember every sub-detail you know, I need to get it, I need to get it. No. Settle back, incline the mind towards interest, and just take it, take it in. Take it in. And, you know, if, you're, if you notice your mind having a big hindrance attack in relationship to what's being said or who's saying it, you can notice that too. Oh, I don't like that one. I like that other one the, <laughs> the other night. They were better. So maybe they were, I don't know. (laughs) Could be. Could be. But it doesn't mean people you don't like or teachings you don't like can't be of benefit. So just notice what's going on there. If the mind is like kind of like fighting with what's being heard or is doing, what's the term, kind of like predatory listening. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to listen now so that I can... Turn the serve, shoot it back over the net. Just notice. And if, if you notice the mind doing that, it's probably not anything new. <laughs> so you may notice there's a habit there. So I've noticed for myself that, except for one retreat that was at the end of my teacher, retraining, teacher training, I never took a note. And yet, my mind was able to remember a, a lot of it, a lot of it, because it was interested. So you can actually, there are cases, many cases of beings awakening while listening to a Dharma talk, and cases where the person offering the Dharma talk has awakened while offering the Dharma talk. So, let's hope, huh? (laughs) All right. So tonight, the main topic is effort. Effort. Wise effort. So, uh, what it is, um, how it's applied, and what skill in making effort looks like or can look like. So there's a lot to this whole area of practice. And it could easily be two, three, four talks on a, on a retreat. But the first point to make is waking up requires effort. So the Buddha talks about this more than he talks about Anything else? I, th- 
I read, I think from Bhikkhu Bodhi, that the Buddha talks more about effort than he talks about any other theme. So that really suggests that awakening, you know, doesn't just like tumble uh, into our laps randomly, that there's participation that's really required on our part. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because you've been practicing here now long enough to realize that you've got some tendencies of mind, perhaps. Have you seen some tendencies of mind that might go in the direction of certain kinds of suffering or repeated patterns of uh, craving, uh, grasping, aversion, resistance, confusion, delusion, all the rest of that? So in order to wake up, these particular uh, patterns of mind in one way or another need to be seen for what they are and they need to be met with mindfulness. So the practice that we're doing here and everything that we're doing here really is a practice of the full Eightfold Path. And if you remember what was said about wise, uh, mundane view, it was, I said there was an important axis right at the beginning of of the path that states of craving, aversion, uh, delusion are to be let go of and lead in suffering directions and states or attitudes of mind, actions of mind, of generosity, loving kindness, wisdom, are to be cultivated, are to be developed, are to be recognized when they are happening. And then the second step of the Eightfold Path, wise intention, has to do with qualities of mind and attitudes and motivations. And it's like we want the uh, intention of letting, letting go of renunciation. We want to actively cultivate um, generosity, compassion, metta. And then the next three steps on the Eightfold Path are sila, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So with this, you see these uh, qualities of the heart and mind, which are unwholesome, being abandoned. We're saying, okay, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to kill, I'm not going to do sexual misconduct, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to, right? That's the restraint part, the seal of steps. And then we get to number six, which is wise effort, where the Buddha talks again in these same terms of what's to be um, let go of and what's to be developed. And he talks first about what's to be let go of. He said the first step here is to, there's four 
great endeavors here. The first step here is to prevent the arising of unskillful actions and states. You know, this is Katie bar the door, right? Don't let them in. Don't let them. Well, now the possibility to completely prevent the arising of unskillful states, attitudes, and actions is what? How are you doing with that one? (laughs) Anybody got a hundred here? Probably not. So, then we see the second of these to be to uh, remove or undercut unwholesome states, attitudes, etc. when they are present. So, unless one is an arhant, there are unwholesome states that can arise in the mind. If one has very strong mindfulness and wise concentration, at certain points, these unwholesome states may not be present, may not be showing up, because they're temporarily suppressed. But that's conditional, because the roots of them, the roots of them, which are in delusion, in uh, avijja, wrong view, the roots of them are still there. So they will show themselves. They will pop up. And it's good that they show themselves. Because if you see it when it's there, that's a lot better than not seeing it and having it run itself. So there's a whole bunch of instruction around recognizing the hindrances and practicing with the hindrances. So when you go into your practice meetings, for instance, it's pretty common for people to say, if the teacher says, well, you know, what's going on? Is there anything, you know, what's, what's difficult to bring up something? And basically, it's a hindrance story. It may take on the form of a personal uh, narrative, um, but you're basically coming forward with a difficult or suffering state of mind and saying what it is, trying to describe it to the teacher, and the teacher will offer you some tips on how to hold that and how to work with it when it's present in the interest of undercutting it. So... If there's mindfulness there, you will recognize its presence. So that's huge. Because really, they're the most dangerous when we don't recognize their presence, but we're just running from it or operating from it. So the third of these great endeavors constitute wise effort is to arouse wholesome, the wholesome. So you could look at this whole framework of retreat as being designed to do that. In particular, every instruction that you've been given in the hall, all the meditation instructions, the uh, 
practices that you've been offered of things like uh, metta, uh, forgiveness, um, the encouragement to uh, renunciation. These are all designed to rouse wholesome states of mind. So in the case of the meditation instructions, <clears throat> you're being coached on how to stand up mindful, mindfulness and have it recognize and meet the full range of things that happen here on retreat as you're sitting, walking, doing your daily activities, eating, all the rest of it. And mindfulness is a very key cultivation because mindfulness allows to meet our experience in a balanced, wise kind of way, having recognized it in real time. So learning the meditation instructions is a really important piece of our practice. There are a lot of different ways uh, that mindfulness, Vipassana meditation can be instructed. They have different flavors to them. There are many other sets of meditation instructions out there in the world in different traditions within Buddhism, uh, even uh, other um, paths. There are the instructions around the Brahma Viharas. There are concentration instructions. There are instructions designed to uh, introduce the mind to uh, a deep level of analysis uh, into phenomenon or into a deep level of rest and the experience of wholesome non-self through the specific cultivation of concentration. So there's a lot jhanas, jhanas, jhanas. I got to get me one. I want to get me four, at least four. I don't know about the non-material jhanas. They're a little obscure, but... You know, a cultivation of concentration is part of the path. Here, when we're instructing you in, in mindfulness, in Vipassana practice, sati is the lead horse. So if you, if you got nothing else out of this retreat but a good grasp of what the basic instructions are, that would be huge. Because then you could practice on your, on your own within a framework. So I meet a fair number of people in the course of teaching in different environments. Um, and when I, in these practice meetings, sometimes I'll ask a person, what set of instructions are you using? Because that makes a difference in terms of how I would talk to them about what's happening. I would try to talk to them within their framework. So it's really interesting to me that a lot, a lot of people can't say what set of instructions they're using. Okay, that's, that's a bit of a problem. Because <clears throat> if you don't know the main path of cultivation, the, the mind kind of tends to, you know, potpourri it 
you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and maybe I can bring in. Not that the practice, the instinct in doing that is always bad or anything, but it's, um, you know, if you keep switching it up too much, you don't get depth. Right? And with the cultivation of sati in particular, it's through uh, continuity of sati that the mind starts to learn the pathway of being able to sustain connection, wise connection with things in real time. If you give it too many pathways, it gets confused. So you don't necessarily find the depth of access. So that's a little bit of a sidebar comment. But uh, the fourth of these great endeavors is to maintain and develop wholesome factors and motivations. So that speaks to continuity of awareness, right? And it speaks to some of the active cultivations that we do here too. The active cultivations of the paramis, the paramitas, the active cultivation of metta and compassion, the active cultivation of sati, So we could say until we are fully awake there will be challenges arising in practice and then we need to recognize what's present just like we recognize wholesome states when they're present which strengthens them and seeds their future arising. But we need to recognize what's present in order to have a wise relationship with it. So what's meant by wise? Well, mindful and compassionate. So purification of mind happens lawfully when the conditions for purification of mind are present. Meaning, we do not need to make it happen. You know, we don't need to lean on the process in a certain kind of way to try to move something along or make it, make it happen or fix it. So when we understand the context of practice, we hold it within wise intention and we have sati, guess what? It opens on its own. It opens on its own. We don't need to kind of like pry open, you know, the doors into the kingdom. It doesn't, it doesn't go like that. The doors seem to open more in. So, let's talk about the middle path idea here. So, There's a classic story in the suttas about a monk who was a lute player. Sona, is that his name? Maybe. Okay, so the the story goes that this particular monk seemed like he was a 
a recent recruit <laughs> or volunteer. <laughs> I'd say it's probably a volunteer. So anyway, he was kind of gently raised, apparently. Um, but hearing the teachings and hearing the Buddha encourage people towards inner um, effort, he really put himself all the way into it. So the story is this monk was doing walking practice and he was walking in bare feet and he was walking on a path that was stony. So as he was doing his walking practice, his feet got cut up and started bleeding. And he... uh, but he had chanda, you know, he had will to do, he had virya, he had willingness, and he kept going with it, right? But his mind wasn't settling down and he wasn't developing any particular concentration or strengthening his mindfulness with this because his feet were cut up and <laughs> they were bleeding and it really hurt. So one version of the story was, He had a sister uh, who seemingly was doing, you know, a sisterly thing and was kind of like checking out what her brother brother was doing. And she realized that it was wacky. And she told the Buddha, my brother's over there and this is what he's doing his feet are all cut up and he's bleeding and but you know he he wants to get concentrated he keeps doing it so uh the buddha went one way or another to the monk and said uh oh i see you're practicing here how's it going <laughs> and the monk said something like uh well uh. and the buddha gave him a teaching to help him come to a realization. And as it happened, this particular monk used to play the lute. And he said, oh, let's see, before you were a monk, you were a lute player, right? And he says, yes, yes, uh, venerable. And he he said, oh, I got it. So when you're, you're playing the lute and the strings were too loose how'd that work you know what that sound like and he said well you know it's not good and he said well how about you know when you really cranked it up when you made them really tight and you tried to play a particular tune how was that then and he said well no that was really not good at all and he said just so venerable. The kind of effort that's being called for should be not too tight and not too loose. And it's said that this particular uh, monk heard this and shaped right up. He was able to grasp the principle that maybe this was being overly austere, and actually kind of dumb, which is what the Buddha was pointing out. The guy had commitment. He was totally in there. 
He was going to, you know, keep working it, but he was disregarding the effect of how he was making effort. He wasn't seeing it, right? He thought if he just kind of like doubled down on the will to do and the renunciation and brought up, you know, his heroic attitude of mind, that somehow this would turn into something good. But, you know, the the Buddha himself went through this period in his own search for enlightenment. He, He originally, when he left the palace and started to practice, he originally went to teachers who seemingly taught something um, concentration-based. And he mastered all that, thus presumably pleasant, and he mastered all of those teachings. At the end of that period, he took a look at it as his own mind, and he said, not done. There's no, you know, I haven't like freed my mind. Thanks, thanks, but I got to, Appreciate it, but I got to head on out. So then he went and went in a very different direction and picked up one way of thinking about spiritual practice at the time, which was austerity based. Austerity based. And he and a number of his friends, who were also spiritual practitioners, took up this these very um, What do you say? Well, not sleeping, not eating, not giving the body anything, um, with this idea in mind that kind of like if you employ these kinds of disciplines, at a certain point the the body is going to give up the spirit. You know what I mean? The shell... Um, you know, you're, the idea was kind of you're enmeshed in materiality and, you know, this isn't really you and so you need to, like, separate yourself from this and then just don't give it anything, you know, and it'll go away at a certain point. And he took it really far. In fact, he says about this that he got to the point where he couldn't even stand up, you know, he would be fallen over. He was starved. He said he could, you know, reach into his stomach area and feel his backbone. Emaciation. And he says, of all the people who have practiced austerities, I've taken it further than anybody. And at the end of that, he had to had to recognize for himself, you know, this is not it either. You know, eating disorders are not going to get you there. So he went from that to the middle path. The middle path. Neither unduly indulgent of, in terms of uh, sense desires nor punitive of the body and the body's needs. So the middle path is the path of practice. So just to say something about our own experience of the middle path when we're doing these practices. How many of you have the association with effort 
that is you know, try really hard. Try, try, try really hard. And your jaw tighten when you think about making effort? Try really hard. Okay, how about um, the question of what is on the line when you're practicing? What is in your mind in terms of your own attitudes when you're practicing? So are there questions, uh, things that come up uh, and infiltrate in there, perhaps without being seen along the line of, if I can't do this, then that means I'm blank, blank, blank. Fill in the blanks. Hopeless, a piece of shit, can never do anything right, the worst one here. That's a a lot to have on the line when you're just trying to feel your feet. So, now if we see that, if we see that with mindfulness and recognize it for what it is, then we can actually either put it to the side or we can actually tap it into the practice field and practice with it. There's some mindfulness there. So what would be a kind of note in relationship to that state? Would it be something like burdening the process? Desperation, desperate, forecasting, weatherman, Bad coach, what would it be? Ill will? Doubt? Could be any one of those things or other things as well. Hmm, if the mind goes, oh, this is interesting, this is interesting. First question would be, well, is there mindfulness here? Mindfulness has got a kind of neutral pitch to it, right? It's just recognizing what's actually there. So there's a certain kind of way, you know, we can double down just like uh, the monk Sona did, right? We're trying, trying in a certain way, you know, we're making effort, we're trying in a certain kind of way, and we try it. And it doesn't go away. Now that's an interesting state right there. That's the paying attention to it so it'll go away mind. Has anybody seen that come up in their practice? (laughs) Pay attention to it so it'll go away. 
And damn, if it doesn't go away, what happens then? Oh, you double down on the same thing? I'm going to really pay attention to it now (laughs) to make it go away now. I'm going to really lean into it to make it go away. The, The noting to make it go away. So what's being missed there is that there's actually uh, aversion in the attention being given to the state, right? The mind is, is tipping because it has an agenda in relationship to this experience now. So it's interested in overwriting it and overriding it. But it's not balanced or sensitive to what is actually there. So it's not pulling on the right stuff. It's not pulling on what's wholesome in meeting it. Maybe a first note might be, useful note might be, unpleasant or difficult or painful or aversion or desperation or frustration or Right? So the capacity to make those kinds of notes, including notes about Vedna in real time, serves to actually stand up mindfulness there in relationship to what's happening. So you might even be able to notice a note, make it go away. Want it to go, want it to go. Pushing it out, pushing it out, wanting it to go. So that works better than, you know, taking Sona's strategy and just continuing to, you know, walk with the bloody feet. Thinking if you just kind of like repeat that whatever set of tactics you've got going, it's going to make something happen that you want to have happen. So the problem there is one is meeting a hindrance with a hindrance. Right? You're practicing through a hindrance. There's something difficult there, something unpleasant there, probably a hindrance. But a hindrance has arisen to try to handle the hindrance. So this is actually pretty common. It's not unusual at all. So sometimes when we use you know, these words of effort... Virya, you know, this heroic energy, you know, being in there, being in there. It, it sounds really yang, right? It's like, I'm going to get in the, in the boxing ring of my mind and I'm going to kind of like duke it out with all these states. But there's a whole other set of words or phrases that we can bring forward in relationship to practice that can be really beneficial. Anybody remember uh, Muhammad Ali, the boxer? Anybody see any footage of his, his fights? So one of the ways he would, he would sometimes fight, he was known for this, he called it the rope-a-dope. Anybody know what that is, the rope-a-dope? 
where he would, you know, be fighting with these very powerful heavyweight fighters, as he was too. And he basically would kind of like, kind of let them punch themselves out. And he wouldn't directly try to overpower them, but he would do, um, he would just kind of let, move with it and let them keep trying to get them and miss them. He would kind of like, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. He wasn't trying to, you know, standing up and taking the full weight of the punches or anything. He was moving. He was yin in that moment. Right? He, the, he was receptive in. He was very clearly recognizing the experience that was coming at him or that was present. But he wasn't being directly confrontational. He was relying more on sensitivity to what was happening and actually, in a certain kind of way, yielding to that energy as it was there and as it came to him. He was connecting with it. He was allowing it to be as it was. He was responding to it without getting into contention with it. He was accepting it. And this is part of the skill of practice, right? Recognizing what's there, not making it an enemy. Even if, even if we're really clear that this is something we don't want to cultivate or strengthen, it's unwholesome. Can we make that recognition without making the presence of that state or that hindrance the enemy? How about getting closer to it rather than teeing off against it? When I say teeing off the imagined separate self fighting with the state... That shouldn't be there. So the paradox with a lot of these practices it's, it is that by getting closer, closer to the experience, with mindfulness, we often disable it. Because we start by disabling our resistance to it. What our unwholesome attitude towards it might be. Is anybody here familiar with the martial art Aikido? Okay, any practitioners of Aikido here? Semi-practitioners? Okay. So this is a a Japanese um, martial art. And It's very much based on the idea of um, nonviolence and taking care of yourself and taking care of the opponent as well. So the skill here is developed by actually learning how to blend with the opponent. So they're coming at you like... Or 
instead of counterpunching or anything like that, there's a certain kind of uh, grappling, grasping, where you move with the energy of the opponent. You use their energy to actually engage them, and then you flip them. But you don't hurt them. So uh, the founder of this system uh, was a pretty amazing guy. There's some uh, old footage around him of uh, doing this kind of combat with multiple opponents at the same time. And they're just like... <laughs> and he's like older person at this point. So how could he do that? No, no, he wasn't paying them to take a flop either. So very clear connection with what's actually present there. Wholesome attitude of mind. A lot of skill development over time in learning to uh, read the grain of what was there, to connect with it, uh, uh, yield with it, Yield to it. And so that's part of the style of practice that can be developed here, too. Instead of thinking about all of this as, you know, you have to keep something out. You have to keep something from happening. Or you need to make something happen. I need to make this happen. Would that be a thought? That's a thought. Oh. Wanting to make something happen. Wanting to make something happen feels like this. As I, as uh, wanting to make something happen uh, opens, blossoms, and has its life. Can you be there with that? At a certain point, something else will happen. Easy peasy, lazy. A lot less work. So that, that's part of the track of practice over time. The mind develops a lot more skill in recognizing and meeting experiences as they arise, both the sensory experiences and the uh, the mental ones. Has anybody ever seen the uh, a little kid play t-ball? You know what t-ball is? For those of you who aren't around, four-year-olds or whatever much. So in the states, you know, baseball is a is a thing, right? And it involves a bat, and then you you know hit a ball that's usually thrown in your direction, over a plate, and you try to, okay, then you run around. <laughs> There's more to it, but we don't need to get that far into it. Okay, but when, when, you're, when you're originally learning, like when you're a little kid, the hand-eye coordination isn't there, right? So little kids, they use like a big inf- uh, 
relatively soft inflated ball. And instead of having someone, you know, throw it at them or throw it at them, they place it on a tee, which is this stand, and they put the ball right on the top of the tee. And the idea, the ball isn't moving, the kid has a bat, they get a little bit of coaching from some random adult. (laughs) Hopefully not too close to them. (laughs) Uh, Who says, okay, (laughs) you know how that can be. Hit it, son, hit it. Uh, So it's just there on the tee. So it got the bat, and... They swing, and it's like a mighty swing. It's like a mighty, mighty swing, right? So it can be really funny and because uh, they'll, like, spin themselves around and, like, totally miss it, you know? Or they'll, like, hit the stand and the ball will go off, and, you know? They're trying really hard. They're trying. They have chanda. They have will to do. What they don't have yet is skill. They, they get the idea, that it ha- but the skill hasn't been developed. So the internal pathways to be able to do this aren't well established. So in doing these practices and learning these practices, it's the same thing. We shouldn't expect to be good at it. This is skill development in making wise effort. So in a certain kind of way, you could say what you're doing here, this is immersion learning, experiential immersion learning. It's you and your aggregates. (laughs) (laughs) Or should I say you are your aggregates? No, that's not right either. The aggregates are you? No, that's not it either. The aggregates are... Learning, observing, hopefully. Coming to some conclusions about what wise attention is in real time with whatever is present there. So just to to say a couple things too about assumptions that we have in practice and how how they show up. One assumption that we tend to have is our practice should be getting easier and easier and more and more pleasant as we go along. Anybody have that assumption? Cop to it, come on. You know you do. Or we hope it will. So it's good to kind of recognize when that's there and kind of smoke that assumption out. (laughs) Because how do you know? You've probably noticed by by now that you might have, for instance, a sit, this is just for example, a sit in the morning where everything comes together and feels kind of like easeful and, and you get kind of might you know if you get a few of those in a row you might 
be going to yourself. I think I got this. <laughs> I think I got it. <laughs> and then you go. All right. Having figured this out, I'm going back in the hall, and I'm going to do it the same way I did it this morning. <laughs> right? I'm going to like walk in the same way. I'm going to like sit down the same way. I'm going to go through my, my preamble the same kind of way. I'm going to make the same resolves. I'm going to start the sitting the same way. I'm going to like do the same breath thing, and then I'm going to, oh. <laughs> and you come in, and you do that. And what happens? <laughs> A different experience arises, right? So it can also be the obverse, right? Sometimes one may have an experience of like, oh God, that was a hellacious walking period. It's like my mind was completely all over the place. It's just like one hindrance after another. I hate this shit. It's like, get me out of here. Bad, bad idea to come to Barry. You go in, mid-afternoon, you make yourself, you go in, you sit down, your mind's kind of bitter. You expect the worst. And, huh, it's not too bad. All right. All right. There's some mindfulness. Oh, there's some. Oh, it's meta. I think there's some meta. <laughs> oh my God, how did I do that? <laughs> so, you know, can there be some compassion there, right? Can there be some compassion? We're always trying to figure out. How to make it happen the way we want it to happen, the way it should happen, the good way to happen, where we're in control happen. And guess what we find out on retreat? And it becomes especially evident on long retreat. We are not in control. (laughs) Is that bad news or is that good news? Some of both. Right? We're trying to discern in any given moment with mindfulness, something is clicking along behind the scenes of how much influence do I have here? <laughs> and you know, because of like it, if the mind tries to impose something on the immediate experience and the causes and conditions aren't there in the moment for that, guess what? It won't happen. So, over time, the mind starts to get more educated through this process of trial and error and starts to focus more on, well, what is there now? What Just what is happening right now? What is it? 
oh, that's happening. Oh, oh. Anybody had these experiences yet of, say, maybe you leave the hall and um, you notice all of a sudden you're going downstairs to do walking practice without having consciously made a choice to do that. Oh, I guess we're going to go downstairs now. (laughs) The royal we. Oh, I guess we're walking now. (laughs) Or maybe we're going to get tea. Oh. Causes and conditions happening. You can't assume that if you're getting a a run of pleasant and easeful experiences... That that's a sign that everything is going to continue to be happening there. Nor can you assume that if you get a run of challenging, difficult, unpleasant experiences, can you assume that it's bad practice? And I mention that in particular because there are Points in practice, both because of the purification process that is at the heart of Vipassana, and also because of how just how the mind opens and learns about the truths of dukkha, anicca, and anatta, that it could be very difficult and very unpleasant. And it's actually a sign of progress in the practice. Oh, no. Right? So you can't really judge your own practice. Well, you can, you will. But you don't, you're not necessarily equipped to do so. Right? So just in terms of using the practice meetings... This is part of why we encourage you to just be forthright and candid about what's happening, right? And maybe even stating and bringing forward your assumptions or your own interpretations of how things are going. You know, a lot of times people will come in and they'll say something like, I'll say, oh, how are you? What's, what's going on? How is it? How are you? And they'll say, it's It's good. And I'll say, yeah, can you say more about that? <laughs> How is it good? How is it good? Why, why do you say good? Or it's really bad, it's really bad, it's horrible, it's horrible. Well, can you describe horrible? Can you <laughs> be a little more specific about horrible? You know, in this process, you'll run the full gamut of stuff if you haven't already figured this out yet, right? Pleasant, very pleasant, unpleasant, very unpleasant, something more in the middle, easeful, challenging, faith-filled, filled with doubt, lots of aversion, big meta, things arise and pass away due to causes and conditions. 
So your, your job in practicing is to learn to sustain mindful attention to experience as it arises, as it is. That's pretty much it. And in learning how to do that, you're actually fulfilling the four great endeavors because of the property that mindfulness has to suppress and undercut the unwholesome and to feed and nourish and arouse the wholesome. So that's pretty much all you need to do. So just remember the power of yin, letting go, receptivity, allowing, surrender, surrender, there's a word, surrender. The practice of non-manipulation in relationship to immediate experience, that can be really powerful. Connecting, conforming to, responding to, accepting, yielding, knowing, knowing with interest. As well as tactics and strategies of bringing forward energy, directly meeting, redirecting, abandoning, right? Yin and yang. So you'll see. So part of the the end of these talks always includes a dedication of merit. What does it mean? That the wholesome act of offering and hearing a Dharma talk in itself is putting forward into the totality a certain set of wholesome causes and conditions that we ourselves and and others can benefit from. So... May this wholesome action of offering and hearing the Dhamma be a cause and condition for our awakening and that of all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.